thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we're back to the aircraft series with a discussion on the once top secret Lockheed Skunk Works F-117 Nighthawk. Despite the F in its designation, if, like me, you always thought of this aircraft as more of an attack plane, then you may be surprised to learn why they in fact call it the Stealth Fighter, according to our guest, retired Michigan Air National Guard Major Robert Donaldson. Well, we were invisible to their radar and everything. We didn't want them controlling their airspace. So uh, our secondary role was to shoot down the Soviet AWACS. Uh, Either on the way in or on the way out, you could add a Soviet AWACS painted to the side of your aircraft. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy Fighter Pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show. This is episode 72 and we'll get to our interview in just a little bit on the F-117. But first, introductions. I am your host, Jello, and returning to help out as guest co-host today is Trey Kalish. What's up, Fish? Hey, Jello. Good to be back on the show. Um, 112 days and counting. <laughs> June 1st, I'll be a civilian and uh, yep. not that I'm counting. Yeah, you told us that when we saw you recently, what, for the Grippen episode? Yes. Okay. So, all right, the count continues. And uh, anything else new? Just the job search and doing the VA stuff. And, okay. Uh, oh, my wife got a job, which is pretty exciting. Ooh. Yeah, at the right. San Diego Foundation. We're really excited. Oh, good. So, good stuff happening. So, let's see. You're a Navy guy. Are you an expert on the F-117 to help us out today? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I have some friends who are in the VFA-136 Nighthawks. Ah. Now, that's night with a K. Uh-huh. Uh, if you're a Monty Python fan, that would be Knigget. <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, I think that, plus the fact that I was free today, pretty much makes me an expert. <laughs> Well, we can learn together. So I didn't know a whole lot about this airplane. It's going to be a really great interview. Now, first off, for those of you listeners who pay attention to our bumper music, you may remember that we have different songs for different types of aircraft. But today, I didn't want to play the attack theme. The fighter song didn't really seem to fit. So we went with the tune our musician Jaime made for the SR-71 Blackbird since it's been a little while. Both of those aircraft come from the Lockheed Skunk Works. So I don't know. I just thought it seemed to fit. Yeah, it seems like a great fit. You know, I was thinking something else, too. You know, mm-hmm. pre-listening to this, some of Robson's stories. Uh, you know the, the song uh, Moving in Stereo from Fast Times at Ridgemont High ah, yes. and the Phoebe Kate scene? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that came to mind. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll get to that. All right, let's see. Announcements first. A lot has happened since we were last together as podcasting friends. First off, the Navy Marine Corps represented nicely, I thought, at the Super Bowl during the flyover there on February 3rd. Well, you know, the biggest thing that surprised me was to see that one of the flight members was Commander Desbury Debo Bowens, mm. who I went through my training in the uh, Super Hornet with. We were also in Kingsville together as flight instructors, so it was cool. pretty cool to see him up yeah. there. And uh, I just wish they could have shown a little bit more of the actual flyover. I think it was probably less than a second. Oh, I didn't <laughs> measure it, but it was pretty darn quick. And then they didn't really even do a replay. 
that was kind of a bummer. But anyway, it's good to see Navy Marine Corps out there and in, uh, in Miami representing well. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, recently the president held his annual State of the Union address. Now, as you know, we don't usually delve into politics here on the show, and we won't now either, because I didn't even catch the speech. I don't know if you listened to it. But I understand he recognized one of the few remaining, if not the last, Tuskegee Airmen. Do you know anything about that, Fish? Oh, yeah. So I didn't listen to the State of the Union address either, but I like to follow the points afterwards. And mm-hmm. one of the big ones was that they honored retired Air Force Brigadier General Charles McGee, who flew 137 combat missions in World War II as a member of the 332nd Fighter Group, which, if you saw the movie a few years back called Red Tails, mm-hmm. it was all about the first African-American pilots, fighter pilots, bomber pilots, uh, who served our country in World War II. Anyway, General McGee had quite a career. First, he flew 403 missions, I think, across three different wars, so including Vietnam and Korea. He earned two legions of merit, three distinguished flying crosses, a bronze star, and 26 air medals. <laughs> and not only that, I know that I also realized reading his resume that there is no end to the uh, number of podcasts you could have on fighter pilots because the aircraft he flew, P-39, P-47, P-51, F-80 shooting star, F-89 Scorpion. And he finished his career in the RF-4 Phantom. So wow. anyway, very impressive and uh, really cool to hear that his grandson was there who wants to go to the Air Force Academy and then be in the Space Force. Somehow I think he'll do okay, hopefully, with that pedigree. But uh, yes, I believe he's 100 years young. So if we're going to catch him on the show, might need to do it soon. Do some research. <laughs> and uh, But anyway, I guess long story short is he ended up getting promoted. Now, I don't know how that works. Nobody's asked me if I want to get promoted in retirement. Right. <laughs> but uh, anyway, they promoted him from colonel to a one-star general. And then I think that was the day before the address. And then they recognized him. Okay. Yeah. I did not hear about the promotion happening the day before. Okay. I think so. I'll have to look again. But again, I don't follow it all too much because frankly, I don't like games where you can't win. But it sounded like it was one of the few things that both sides of the aisle uh, stood up and applauded. So anyway, good on him and his family. And of course, you know, those were very different times. By the way, I have a friend whose father was a Tuskegee Airman, and this gentleman flies P-51s around to air shows. Oh, wow. So I'm trying to get him on the show. I've just not been able to align our schedules. So uh, hopefully we can catch either maybe General McGee or uh, get my friend to come on and go from there. All right, let's see. In other news, our new Facebook group for aspiring military aviators, known as The Pit, is growing like crazy since we announced it last episode. And then I posted the group's cover image on Instagram the other day. Uh, We blew past 170 members in no time. And it's really awesome. There's folks from all over the world helping each other out in a collaborative environment, just answering questions, asking questions. It's really heartening to see. And someone asked me, how is it going to be different than the other you know, systems that are out there that allow this. Well, I don't know. We're the ones doing it, I guess. So that's different, but it's just good to see that people are helping each other out. And that's been the plan all along. Now, let's see. Also, those of you into air combat simulation and gaming, such as DCS, good news. Our parent organization, BVR Productions, proudly announces the launch of our second podcast, the Air Combat Sim. ACS will bring together content creators, influencers, and campaign builders in a forum setting discussing matters relevant to you, the gamer. Now, as we record this fish, the show has not yet gone live, but by the time you, the listener, hear it, it should have. The first episode is titled Sim-isms. 
fish. I know you're familiar with that term, but maybe the listener <laughs> isn't, but it's just a way to talk about what happens and what's different about simulators. And it features a guest you may recognize. The second episode should also be up at the same time, and you can expect new episodes every two to three weeks. So check out the new show at aircombatsim.com or on your favorite podcast app. All right, that should do it for announcements. Fish, you game for a few listener questions before we get to the interview? Absolutely, let's do it. All right, why don't we start with a phone call this week? Good morning, Jello. This is Danny Victory from Los Angeles, California. Thank you for a great show. Wanted to ask you, the word cockpit, where does it come from? What are the origins? Does it have anything to do with the bird or male anatomy? Thank you so much. Wish you all the best. All right, Danny from Los Angeles wants to know why it's called a cockpit. Fish, what do you know about this? So this is a great question. You'll obviously hear a lot of jokes about it too. But uh, without getting too much into it, we'll start off by saying that the term cockpit is used actually for lots of things. Where it probably comes from um, originally is from sailboats. So that backspace on the sailboat where the craft is actually steered from. But you'll also hear like Formula One race cars. They refer to their where the driver sits as a cockpit. It really kind of extends back to some British etymology there and a place where uh, a lot of politicians would meet that used to be a cockfighting ring where that current building like uh, was built. Like roosters, exactly. Huh. So they refer to that as the cockpit. And from what I can tell, the RAF were the first ones to use the term cockpit to refer to the control area where mm. you controlled the craft from. And then it spread from there. Well, curiously, in our airline capacity, they no longer call it that. We call it the flight deck. And I don't know if it's for any other reason, but again, a word with some very deep history. All right, next is an email. This one is one of a couple, courtesy of Brian from Rootstown, Ohio. And he asks, or states, frankly, drop tanks. Are they expensive? Are they often discarded during a mission? Do you always use the fuel from the tanks first? Do they have any self-sealing protection? Now, Fish, I'll let you answer this, but I'll just throw in right now, I've never dropped a drop tank. <laughs> I've carried a lot of them. I've never dropped one either, and uh, I can't remember a mission, at least in F-18s or S-3s, obviously training aircraft, we didn't carry them, where we didn't have a drop tank. Mm -hmm. If you got to fly without a drop tank, that was a lucky day, because you could really max perform that sucker. Mm -hmm. But no, they're not expensive. That's relatively. the purpose of them, relatively, right? You know. Mm -hmm. However, they do cost money and they don't just want us to drop them listlessly. Right. I had one case where we couldn't get the fuel out of the drop tanks. So what they ended up doing was instead of having me pickle it, they kept me airborne as long as they could. So I hit the tanker and got more gas and they just had me constantly G up the jet to see if it would get those valves to open. Hmm. And after doing that for about an hour, the valves finally opened and it started to transfer. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, we don't want to pickle them if we can help it. During a mission, the only time that you would really discard it is if you needed to maneuver. So obviously, they slow you down a lot. If you're trying to evade SAMs, you're going to pickle those things right away. It's part of your procedures. Or right before you come to the merge, if you're in combat, you're going to get rid of those drop tanks so that you can actually maneuver and fight the fight. Mm -hmm. And then as far as where does the fuel go first? Well, the fuel is going to go into inside the aircraft. So as you're burning fuel, as long as your switches are engaged in the proper position, all the fuel should go into the aircraft, and then the drop tanks will be the first things to empty. That's right. And then that self-sealing protection, uh, they're made of fiberglass. Mm -hmm. So if you drop one of those things off the wing, and it has happened before, you know, or he's at, you know, there's a mistake that's made and they hit the ground, they crack and fuel goes everywhere. So Yeah. I don't know if you're going to get quite the 
explosion that uh, if you remember behind enemy lines when they pickled it to uh, decoy the missile that was chasing them like a rabid uh, dog one correction or actually i guess a question you must have flown the t-45 in training yes i did because i flew the ta4j and we never flew it without no kidding wheel. Uh, uh, yeah yes, well we call them right. training wheels but yeah the drop things the training wheels if you had a problem you had two of them and so you could easily land with your gear up uh-huh. on those drop tanks and i think yeah people who watch movies or if you read a lot of books you know in world war ii and even in korea it was very common to pick all the drop tanks yes and in fact first sight of enemy that's what you did but if you didn't see them you'd often bring it back and then yeah to your point top gun suggests jettison criteria where if you are defending from let's say a surface air missile and you get to a certain altitude and a certain speed then at that point there's no sense in having that extra drag and they'll recommend that you jettison those tanks to try to maintain the altitude and airspeed that will help keep you safe all right great let's finish with another phone call this one is from ben in chattanooga i've got a question regarding hypoxia i know that it is a dangerous scenario for any pilot, whether that be military or, or civilian. But my question is, is there anything that pilots can do, not just to recognize the symptoms, but to prevent it? Um, and that goes further than just in the cockpit, but their daily lives, their training. Specifically, could the use of high elevation training masks, you know, that restricts your oxygen levels whenever you're doing cardio and training and exercises like that. Could the use of that make your body adapt to where you'd be less susceptible to hypoxia? Or is there really the only thing you can do is prevent it just by recognizing the symptoms? Thank you. Fish, I don't know if you want to weigh in on this, but I don't know if you ever knew Sue J. She was our guest on our Pulling G's episode, and she was an aviation, I think it was called operational physiologist. So she provided an answer to this. Do you have a guest, though? No, I've I've never met Sue J. Okay. Do you have so, a guess on the answer though? As far as Yeah, whether the high I, altitude training is gonna help you for hypoxia? I've only heard that it has helped some guys okay. for, you know, recognizing the symptoms. And so Well, Sue sent me a very detailed response. And if anyone wants further than what I'm about to read for you, email me at Vincent at bvrpro.com. That's bvrpro.com. And I'll send the whole email to you. But basically what Sue says is the use of a high altitude mask does nothing to increase human performance in a hypoxic environment. The underlying cause of altitude hypoxia is the reduced atmospheric pressure, specifically the reduced partial pressure of oxygen. A high-altitude mask has the potential to increase respiratory function, i.e. strengthen the breathing muscles. So that's why athletes will do it or go to Denver to train or up in the mountains. But it does nothing to simulate the decrease in O2 partial pressure within the lungs, nor does the mask simulate an increased production in the number of red blood cells used for O2 transport. I misunderstood the question. Oh. Oh, yeah. So I was thinking of the high-altitude training that they do when we go through flight school, which they don't do anymore where they put you in the pressure chamber and you start off at low altitude oh, yeah, and yeah. they rapidly take you to high altitude. Yeah. You get to experience hypoxia. That's right. So I was thinking of from that oh, standpoint, yeah, yeah. that kind of high altitude no, I, training. I, I, not... think, I think what Ben was meaning was, hey, you know, athletes do this for training. Yes. Uh, could pilots do it and maybe make them less hypoxic? And it sounds like the answer is no. no. All right. Well, that'll do it for questions for this week. If you've always wondered something about military aviation or air combat, submit it to the show. Our email and phone number will be mentioned in the closing bumper. 
All right, before we get to the interview then with Robert Donaldson, I should mention that we recorded this in December of 2019. So when he says, for example, September a couple months ago, uh, that's why. And then there's a couple audio sins that were committed in the recording of this. I'll spare you the details. And it's quite possible that our producer, Bernie, from our friends at the Muscle Car Place Podcast Network, well, by the time he finishes it with it, you might not even hear it anyway. But Fish, any thoughts before we kick to the interview? No, just excited to hear what Robson has to say about uh, the F-117, since you and I both know so much about it. I just want to see if he's accurate. <laughs> no doubt. All right, let's get to it. All right, on the phone today, dialing in from Anchorage, Alaska, is Robert Donaldson, retired major of the Michigan Air National Guard. Robson, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jello. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Good. It's good to have you on. And uh, let's talk about the F-117 Nighthawk today. But before we do, let's learn about you. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What'd you do in the military? And what are you doing now? Okay. Well, I, I was born into a military family. My dad was a fighter pilot uh, in the U.S. Air Force. So born in uh, Munich, Germany, lived around the world for, uh, you know, moving every three years, uh, Panama, Philippines, Texas, Florida, finally uh, settled up down to Panama for five years, went to uh, high school down there, as well as uh, one year of junior college, came up to the States when my dad retired and finished up my uh, college education at uh, Arizona State University and then off, uh, I was in ROTC mm-hmm. and so off to pilot training at uh, Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma for a year, then uh, Osan, Korea, uh, F-16s at Homestead Air Force Base, and then uh, got the F-117 assignment after about uh, seven, eight years in the Air Force at that time. Okay. And what'd you do after that? Uh, after the uh, F-117 uh, tour, then I got out of the Air Force and I got hired with the uh, Wisconsin Air National Guard flying F-16s with them as well as American Airlines. And a couple of turmoil years there in the airline industry, uh, mm-hmm. furloughed from American, went to Northwest, and then uh, I also moved over to the uh, Selfridge Air National Guard base in Michigan since I was based in Detroit with uh, Northwest Airlines. It was okay. easy for me to have both my uh, guard base and my uh, commercial airline base uh, in the same location. So. Finished out my time with the Michigan Air National Guard and then um, concentrated on my uh, commercial airline career, which took me up to uh, Alaska in 2000, actually in 1997, but full time in, uh, in 2004, where I've been ever since. All right, great. Are you still flying? Well, it's funny you should say that because uh, mm-hmm. my last flight with uh, Delta Airlines, Delta bought uh, Northwest about 10 years ago. So right. my last flight with Delta Airlines was uh, on September 15th of this year, about three months ago. And I am just enjoying uh, sleeping in my own bed for the entire <laughs> month and waking up to the sun and having a much less hectic pace of life. So uh, you could call me retired, yes. Oh, good on you, man. Well, that's not a bad thing to have. And uh, you're making it up there in Alaska. How many hours did you have in the Nighthawk? Sounds like you flew the F-16 quite a bit. I did. I flew principally the F-16 in my uh, career there. The Nighthawk, uh, somewhere around 600 hours, I believe, uh, total time, which was fairly high time for the airplane. The whole program, when it was in the black, i.e. not uh, releasable to the public there, we had A-7s as companion trainers. And then uh, when those started getting old, we uh, picked up uh, AT-38s also. So a typical day might be, uh, you know, go fly a, a day sortie in the uh, in the AT-38 and then a nighttime sortie or two in the, uh, in the F-117. So I had a lot of time in the T-38, but uh, you know, yeah. majority of the time, obviously, in a very short period of time was uh, during Desert Storm. Yeah. Okay. We'll get to that. And did I read correctly? I mean, a lot of the first flights, both for the aircraft and for the pilots in the F-117 were at night. And that was part of the secrecy you mentioned. Was that your case or did you get a flight in the daytime first? I mean, that makes a big difference. At least it did for me when I was a relatively young pilot. 
Everybody was handpicked into the program there. They only took experienced guys, so he had to have at least a thousand hours of uh, fighter time in any other type airframe, be it uh, A10, F4. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't take F15 guys uh, too much because they crashed our airplanes. <laughs> so uh, you had to be experienced to start with. The uh, the training was only about a month long, two weeks of academics, two weeks of flying, uh-huh. uh, no two-seat trainers. Mm-hmm. So everybody's first flight was during daylight, okay. whether it was at Tonopah or uh, another location. The almost universal exclamation was, uh, wow, that was just like the sim. Mm-hmm. So the training was uh, excellent, really, really great. It was done by retired uh, military guys. It's very, really a very simple airplane to fly and employ. So uh, it didn't take that long. But they only trained about 12 guys a year, oh, just depending okay. upon the needs. So um, the first flight was, yep, just like the sim. So, uh, yeah. Well, we've had a couple aircraft mentioned on the show that don't have two-seat variants. And so I just assume that when those aircraft exist, they just make sure you're really ready to go for that last simulator check ride before you ever get in the thing. And then, of course, you have a brief with an instructor before you go and someone on the radio to help. But, okay, pretty cool. Now, we kind of jumped ahead. Let's start back at the beginning. What is the F-117 and how did it come to be? Well, it's basically second-generation stealth. First-generation stealth was the SR-71. It was noticed that it was either never detected over enemy uh, territory or they were very late in picking up. And obviously, uh, the SR-71 never having been shot down despite being shot at 900 times with uh, surface-to-air missiles. So the U.S. Air Force said, hey, we think there's something here. Put out a proposal to companies to uh, build what they thought would be a uh, non-observable type aircraft. Lockheed wasn't invited to that uh, competition, but kind of stuck their foot in the door anyway and uh, came up with the uh, the award-winning design. So really kind of like second generation uh, stealth. So Lockheed's design was based on a Russian mathematician's theorem of stealth. This was during the height of the uh, Cold War between the United States of America and and the USSR. The Russians disregarded his theorem, but a Lockheed engineer picked it up, said, hey, I think I got something I can work with here, and came up with the design of Lockheed's entrance into the competition. And that's why the airplane looks a lot like the way it does uh, being just a second generation uh, stealth aircraft. Yeah, the computing power back then wasn't very great, I read. And so what they were able to do was some two-dimensional shapes and they decided triangles were important. So they kind of did a bunch of different triangles. And I think that was partly why it looks the way it does. I mean, it looks like a giant triangle anyway, but if you look at individual <laughs> subsegments just around the nose and the intakes, you see a lot more of those types of shapes. That's correct, yes. The shape of the aircraft was paramount. Everything had to fit into that shape. Also, with the shape came what we called RAM material, radar absorbent mm-hmm. material. So if you think of a diver's neoprene dive suit, uh, we had guys and gals that applied that onto the airplane to help with the radar absorbent technology. There were some other concepts there too. If, right. if you look at some of it, it looks like shark tooth edges and that's known as faceting. And that also uh, combined to reduce the uh, the signature of the aircraft in all spectrums. Right. In fact, you see that now in more and more applications, even the landing gear doors on the F-18 Super Hornet will have that. And uh, I think the idea is when it's closed, you don't have that otherwise flat edge. You have something that's a little bit sawtooth, as you said. Right. Yeah. All right. And the whole idea here, right, correct me if I'm wrong, is we're going to build an airplane that, a lot like our discussion on the SR-71 when we had our guest on the show, you have speed. That is your weapon. That is your defense. That's your everything. And in your case, you guys have stealth. So the idea is we don't want to be seen. 
if we are seen, we have a problem and we'll get to that here, I think, in the conversation. But the idea is we're not going to be the most maneuverable. We're not going to be the fastest or the highest flying or the lowest, but ideally they just don't see us. And that is our secret weapon. Is that fair? That's all correct. Yes. Yeah. The overall concept of the aircraft, once uh, the Air Force decided to uh, award it to Lockheed and proceed on with the production of the aircraft was it was going to be the United States of America's silver bullet to Moscow Mm. uh, in the event of a big nuclear war. It would be able to uh, get in unseen, deliver um, some devastating munitions on Moscow there and be able to return. So once again, it was our ace up our sleeve at the height of the Cold War there. Gotcha. All right. Well, that being said, I mean, it's called the F-117, and I postulated about this way back on an early episode, but maybe if you can be the authority here, I mean, was that just some subterfuge to try to mess up anyone who might be watching or to try to attract the best pilots? I've heard different stories on why this thing is called the F-117 instead of probably more rightly an A-117. That's correct, yes. Its primary role was attack, but having said that, it could actually carry every munition in the inventory at the time of its uh, inception. With the exception of the Sparrow missile, which was radar-guided. So we could carry air-to-air missiles. We could carry the full gamut of uh, air-to-ground munitions and everything. So the F-117 designation has long been rumored and and postulated, and and, uh, many beers have gone down about why it was (laughs) as such. But uh, um, I think it was basically they just uh, said, hey, we don't want to have anything really too extraordinary out there Mm -hmm. uh, at all. But yes, in all reality, it it is an attack jet, but it did have a limited air-to-air capability. Okay. And this thing started back in the early 70s, and I think it reached initial operating capability, what, in the early to mid-80s? Yeah, real quick, it was, a, it was truly a success story in, uh, on Lockheed's part, and uh, as well as uh, I'm going to have to give some kudos to the Department of Defense and such, in that it went from 31 months from the time of, of uh, the Air Force saying, hey, go ahead, until the first aircraft flew. So that's pretty much unheard of in in, uh, those times and certainly in today's world where it takes a decade (laughs) to develop an aircraft. So yeah, it it happened pretty quick. Yeah. Well, I think the time from design to flight is uh, increasing because the complexity of aircraft are increasing. And I think to your point, in this case, the SR-71 had already kind of set the tone, but for Skunk Works, this was still a lot of new technology of the shape. I mean, this thing is not going to fly on its own, so it needs the fly-by-wire, and of course, you've got the different intakes and exhausts, so to be able to do all that and make it stealthy and get it flying in less than three years, I agree, that's pretty impressive. Yes. All right, cool. So of the strike role that it's intended to do, is there a particular role that it does well? I mean, uh, I guess history is probably the best example of this, maybe a night one downtown kick open the door kind of thing? It did it extraordinarily well in that it's basically sneak into your enemy's backyard Mm. and just clobber him on the head with a hammer. He doesn't know you're there. He can't detect your presence via either radar, visually, which is why we flew at night. Infrared, we had uh, nil for a signature. Acoustically, uh, the airplane was, uh, you'd think it was right in front of you when really it was miles down the road. And that came into play when the Iraqis started just shooting at the sound of the aircraft. It all started with way behind 
behind you and uh, eventually caught up to you. But it did its job extraordinarily well in all the spectrums that it was designed mm-hmm. to do. And it became very obvious that we were the weapon of choice because we could get in undetected. We didn't need the giant guerrilla packages of the past where you needed a, a suppression of enemy air defenses. You needed a offensive counter air. You needed jamming. Right. You needed a whole plethora of airplanes. This was a single aircraft platform that could just sneak in and uh, devastatingly deliver a very accurate uh, munition because all our weapons of choice were 2,000-pound laser-guided bombs, which at that time was the most precise weapon in the United States inventory. It's almost an airborne sniper, right? I mean, a sniper spends days crawling into position to get the bullet on the appropriate target, so... Yes, that's a that's a very uh, good description. Never heard that before, but very good. <laughs> yeah, yes. well, it's slightly different style of warfare, but all right, that makes <laughs> right. sense. Now, not a lot of these were built. There were uh, somewhere around sixty four, I think I read. Uh, Fifty nine were uh, were built, in that we okay. the, the U.S. Air Force placed their hands on some of those were belonged to Lockheed as uh, test platforms and sure. things like that. So that is correct. Not a lot were built. And if I could touch on that real quick, it's an interesting story. Part of our uh, academics with the program was to get on a, an unmarked airplane at Nellis Air Force Base and fly over to Burbank, which was the home of the Skunk Works at the time. And mm-hmm. so there were only two other guys in my class who were dressed in civilian uh, clothes and had this preconceived notion of a very sterile environment of the skunk works and after some uh, some very extensive security they finally opened up the door in this uh, windowless building and we walked inside and and here were these uh, little old grannies in tennis shoes running around and these uh, <laughs> these long-haired hippies with earrings in their ear. And they are banging away on these airplanes that were going to fly. It was straight out of Monster Garage. It was nothing <laughs> like the sterile environment. I had tools all around and there's grease uh, and stuff like that. But they sure turned out a nice product. It blew away my stereotype of what the Skunk Works was like, yeah. thinking it was going to be a very sterile type environment, but far from it. It's also interesting to me that some of the things we're talking about at one time were top secret, which is about as high as you can get in the classification system in the U.S. I mean, some of the, just the aircraft itself for the longest time, what, about five years at least before they acknowledged it publicly. And then some of the different things now, even where it was flown, all that is public now. And that's, I don't know, for me, it's still a little strange because I sometimes wonder which things are and aren't, and I hate to get in trouble. That's my big fear on this show. (laughs) Anyway, so of the 59 that they built, were they all a single variant? I think the F-117A? That is correct, yes. There was no B, C, D, E, F variant like the F-4 or F-18 or F-16, anything like that. Just the one uh, type that they built, yes. Now, but that particular model had upgrades. I think you and I talked via email before we recorded that at one point it was simply the INS, inertial navigation system. And then later on, different systems came on to even make it more lethal. Yes. Everything that was added on in, in later time was either a software update or something internal to the airplane. There was no external uh, configuration on the airplane that made it look different. But it was built like the F-18. I always use that as my example because it's my experience. But when you want to flare on that aircraft, you have to hang it on the left fuselage station for the F-117. You had all this built in, correct? Yes. Uh, the aircraft actually had two FLIR-type systems. One, the first one was mounted on top of the nose of the aircraft and uh, called the FLIR forward-looking infrared. And then we had the same type system mounted just below that on the bottom of the nose of the aircraft called the DELIR, downward-looking infrared. So huh. the FLIR was slave to the uh, INS. It acquired the target. The pilot fine-tuned it, and then it, the system transferred down to the DELIR. And the drop of the weapon was off the DELIR. Okay. But two same systems on board the aircraft there. So. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And then, of course, different weapons probably came along over time. Some weapons probably taken away, even for that matter. Yeah, as weapon technology uh, advanced, then uh, so did some of the uh, the tactics and uh, capabilities of the F one seventeen. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because you had talked earlier about going downtown Moscow. I mean, so was the nuclear mission part of this aircraft at one point? That is correct. That was America's silver bullet to uh, wow. to Moscow. It mm-hmm. was to drop nukes on Moscow or any other place in the world that needed them at the time, I guess, uh, and get in undetected and get out. And and our secondary role was to shoot down the Soviet AWACS. Really? So, uh, yeah. Well, we were invisible to their radar and everything. We didn't want them controlling their airspace. So uh, okay. uh, either on the way in or on the way out, you could add a Soviet AWACS painted to the side of your aircraft. <laughs> you have to use the proper paint, of course, to do that. Yeah. <laughs> that makes Makes sense then now that you talk about the missiles that they had. I'd never heard that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So in the heyday of this aircraft, let's say between Desert Storm and the Bosnia Herzegovina slash Yugoslavia, I don't never know what to call that. The Allied Force is probably the easiest. What was the bread and butter? You already touched on 2,000 pound laser guided weapons. Is that pretty much its weapon of choice? That was. We had basically Mark 82s and Mark 84s, 500 and 1,000 pounders that were outfitted with uh, laser guided. 500 and 2,000. I'm sorry. Right? Five, yeah, thanks. 500 and 2,000 pounders that were. Our weapon of choice was to carry two 2,000 pound laser guided bombs. Okay. The 2,000 pounders came in at that time, a uh, different variants. One was the, uh, the GBU 10, and the other one was the. Uh, GBU-27, which was built specifically for our airplane. It was designed as a bunker buster penetrator. Very, very accurate uh, weapon. And quick story, we would go up to Baghdad, uh, in the vicinity of Baghdad, and and we started bombing uh, Saddam Hussein's hardened aircraft shelters. Well, they were built quite well that some of the GBU-10s, the softer, uh, older uh, 2,000-pounders, just bounced right off. (laughs) It was one of those things in war. A night or two passed, and we got information that Saddam had packed his shelters with aircraft thinking that they were impervious because our bombs had bounced off and not done anything. The next time that we came back, we came back with a GBU-27, the penetrator. And so that just drilled right through those uh, hardened aircraft shelters and destroyed everything that was inside them. So yeah. uh, just one of those things that, that goes on during war, right? Yeah. So a penetrator is going to have, what, a little bit different construction and probably something solid in the nose to allow it to travel through. And then it's got to have the right fuse as well, right? That's all correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It was a cold forged steel bomb versus a concrete body with tritonol, like a GBU-10 uh, bombs of the Vietnam uh, conflict era. So brand new weapon. And by the way, we were the only ones to carry those. Uh, it was made specifically for our aircraft. Crazy. Okay. Yeah. And then later on, did the JDAM come along? Yes. And uh, so when we were in Desert Storm, our rules of engagement were you could not release the weapon unless you positively visually ID'd the target. Yeah, We just couldn't sling them off there off the INS or anything like that. It had to be guided down to terminal impact by the laser on board the aircraft. And that was controlled by the pilot. So JDAM Mm -hmm. came along and changed things uh, quite a bit and that a pilot could sling it out there with a high degree of confidence that it was going to go exactly where he wanted it to be. Yeah. So laser or GPS guided, no general purpose necessarily, or crazy forward firing jasms or harms? Or 
<laughs> no, I think all, everything we dropped during Desert Storm was laser guided. Okay. But once again, it could carry everything in the inventory. Uh, and it was tested by the Lockheed guys and the U.S. Air Force test pilots and things like that. So if, okay. if the need arose, we could, but uh, it didn't. Yeah. Right. Well, the point being that the architecture, if you will, is such that it attaches because they were smart enough to make things interchangeable. But for the sake of the mission, they said, well, we have this ability, but we're not necessarily going to train to it. Okay. True. Uh, yeah. No gun, I assume, or cannon. No, and that was surprisingly one of the first things. When I first uh, saw the airplane part of my first look at it there, it was in a hangar at Tonopah, and I went inside with a guy, and they flipped the lights on. And first of all, I thought it was a spaceship, couldn't believe it. And then I thought it was like a painting, and I, I had to go up and touch it to make sure it was real. But a couple of my first quick questions are: were, uh, you know, where's the gun? Where's where's the chaff and flares? And, and the guy just looked at me, and he said, not needed, not needed. Wow. You know, no gun on the airplane. Right? And no chaff and flare either. No chaff and flares either. Yeah. Wow. How about any kind of toad decoys or anything? And again, you're, the idea is they just don't see you, so you shouldn't need all this, right? But no toad things or deception? No toad decoys at all. An interesting aspect of the airplane was that uh, they had F-18 engines, but we also used space shuttle tiles really? on the bottom of the airplane to dissipate the heat. You know, it was pretty futuristic for its time uh, in service there. Yeah, the uh, GE F-400s, but obviously no afterburner. A big part of your signature reduction was to try to dissipate the heat and have it come through different ways, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. What was flying it like? I mean, was it easy to fly? Was it difficult? It was, <laughs> as my commander said, it, it was it's hard to get going and it's hard to get stopped, much like an F-100. <laughs> so uh, it had no leading edge devices. And so we pretty much took off on pure speed alone, pretty uh, high speed takeoffs. And uh, oh, wow. yeah, our base in Nevada and our base in Saudi Arabia were up uh, well over a mile high. So we had some pretty long takeoff rolls. And, and you couple that with carrying 4,000 pounds of ordnance, uh, we would typically take off with less than a full fuel load from our Saudi base, uh, just for performance capabilities there. Yeah. And coming in for landing, it was high speed, especially if you're bringing back weapons of any sort. So initially we had the uh, parachute, we deployed the chute on every uh, landing, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a hook back up, and the initial brakes on the airplane were not very good at all. They were later replaced by uh, F-15E Strike Eagle brakes, which were much more heavy duty and able to stop the airplane in the, in the event of a uh, a chute. Malfunction. Uh, malfunction and or a, a hook malfunction. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes on the show, I get questions from people like, hey, the F-16 has a hook. Could it land on the carrier? <laughs> and I have to uh, explain the difference between an Air Force hook and a Navy hook because, again, right. for you guys, it's more of a, uh-oh, I need to pick up the long field 
barrier cable here. Otherwise, I'm going to go trickling off the runway kind of thing. So, yes. All right. What was your approach speed, if you're willing to say? Oh, man. If I remember right, I think it was like about 175 knots plus wow. uh, gas and fuel. So, we saw some very, very high speed approaches. Dang. Yeah. It was a high speed jet. And uh, during Desert Storm, they came down with a mandate hey, uh, even if you recover during the day, no overhead patterns, you know, you're tired, you're, yeah. you know, everything was off a of straight end. So, you pretty well, okay, a period of time to get settled down. But it was high speed, there was no doubt. Yeah. Well, what was the highest speed you ever saw in flight and how high have you ever had one? Oh, goodness gracious. I guess it's not <laughs> supersonic with those angles. It is not supersonic. Uh, again, getting back to the radar absorbent material, you'd start mm-hmm. ripping that off and exposing uh, aluminum skin and becoming a radar return. So hence, it was okay. high subsonic, very, very high subsonic. One of our tactics during Desert Storm was to take advantage of uh, almost a 200-knot jet stream flowing over Iraq at the time. So a lot of our attacks went from uh, west to east to take advantage of the extra 200 knot push. And so saw some pretty high ground speed, but the indicated speed was still subsonic. Yeah, Yeah, we could get it up to the 40s. Pretty much empty though. It okay. was. It was not designed to be a high altitude jet. Yeah. It was. Yeah. So that's about as high as I've been in the thing. Pulling G's. I mean, does it pull any G's or just? It was a 7.33 G jet, you know, much to everybody's surprise, but it was like an, an old F4D, hard wing D. It was good for one pull, one turn, and then you better head downhill to get some energy back, <laughs> get some uh, knots under your belt. So not a dogfighting uh, machine. You can't have yeah. one aircraft that's going to do it all well, and so you're going to have to make some sacrifices. Nope. <laughs> all right, fair enough. And then as far as stick and throttle, Hotaz, I mean, was it easy to fly? Was it a joy or was it kind of a pain? It was a joy to fly. It had the same flight control uh, system as the F-16, quadrant fly-by-wire. The stick was in the middle, which was a transition for me. I was Mm -hmm. used to uh, the F-16 stick on the side there. The first time I sat in the jet uh, when they closed the canopy, I really felt like I was being entombed because I was used to the unparalleled visibility in the F-16, sitting out there at the end of a pencil and everything. But you learn to work around that. We had a big HUD up front, which uh, uh, limited uh, forward visibility, which came into play when you were uh, rendezvousing on the tanker to get your your gas. But we learned to work around that quite a bit. We'd skid into the tanker and into position and and everything. But uh, once again, you're not really looking outside. You're looking at the systems uh, inside. And we had the HOTAS. Yeah, everything was on hands-on stick and throttle. You didn't have to take uh, a hands-on throttle and stick. You didn't have to take your uh, hands off of anything. And um, it was a joy to fly. I really enjoyed flying it. Once you you learn that this is not the F-16, it's not the F-4, it's not anything like that. It has its limitations, but it also has its positives. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed every minute in the aircraft. I really did. Did you guys fly with night vision goggles? No, we did not. The FLIR provided uh, supreme capabilities for our nighttime operations. What about tactics? And uh, this is where I have to be careful, but you can either not answer or whatever. But would you guys go in in formation? I mean, if you're not wearing night vision goggles, I could see that being very difficult. Or just roughly, maybe you had an altitude sanctuary from your buddy, so you're kind of together, but not really. I mean, or were you just alone and unafraid? It was very much the lone wolf mentality, which I I really liked. Wow. Yes. So typically we took off 20 airplanes in a wave wow. uh, out of our Saudi base, meet 10 tankers, two airplanes per tanker. We'd go up to the border with Iraq and then we'd split off there. Everybody had their own individual routes to fly on individual targets. A lot of times we had the same target, mm-hmm. but you're never in communications with your wingman. You It was never a, uh, a wingman considered uh, type deal. Our biggest deal as if we had uh, the same targets and multiple airplanes it was just deconfliction and that was yeah. via altitude but all the rest of it was you are on your own you close up your antennas you do what we call stealth up 
shut off all communications, all emissions from the aircraft, retract uh, the antennas into the body of the aircraft, turn off your lights, and, and you're on your own. <laughs> That's pretty Which, cool. once again, I thoroughly enjoyed that. That was like built for me. Yeah. Okay. That sounds cool. As far as strengths and weaknesses go, what was one thing about it that you really loved? And of course, flying it is one thing, but maybe a feature of the aircraft. And then was there anything, again, realizing it's not a dogfight or anything else, but was there anything for its mission that you wish they would have fixed if there either had been more money or more of them built or anything? (laughs) Well, uh, yes, two things come to mind. One, I would have put the stick on the side, quite honestly, (laughs) just like the F-16, but I'm biased at that point. And Mm -hmm. the other thing is also ergodynamically, the F-16 seat was tilted back 30 degrees, which greatly assisted in NG as well as pilot fatigue. The F-117 seat was straight up and down. That became a factor in our, you know, sometimes we had missions eight, eight and a half hours long, and you're carrying 50 pounds of survival gear in your vest and things like that. And so the fatigue Mm -hmm. factor was uh, just sitting straight up was noticeable. But other than that, you know, the airplane was, uh, I I can't think of anything that I would have asked Lockheed to redesign, redo, add on, anything like that. And Lockheed did come to us after the war and said, hey, would you guys like something different on the plane. How can we help you out? And we all kind of looked at each other and go, no, it works just fine. So, (laughs) Well, that's a testament to the design in the first place, but they do a good job. So that's cool. How about notoriety? I mean, this thing has its own cult following and it's got an iconic shape, but where would people have seen it either in the news and or in Hollywood? Well, the first time that anything ever kind of came out about a new and different airplane was after the first crash in uh, near Bakersfield, California. Mm-hmm. And there was a little bit of subterfuge involved in all that. It immediately became a, uh, a no-fly area for any general aviation. Uh, and the guy buried the airplane pretty high speed, pretty deep into the desert. Once they cleaned it up and everything, then uh, the Air Force in their cunning ways went and spread old F-101 parts around the area so that <laughs> if anybody was looking, they would dig up an old 101 part. So a uh, little bit of, uh, you know, red herring uh, type. That's uh, awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. Some of that going on. But so then that kind of was the first clue that, hey, there's something out there. But Lockheed mm-hmm. helped to stem that a bit by building as much of the airplane with off-the-shelf parts as they possibly could. Okay. So uh, there wasn't anything disappearing into a black hole, which somebody could kind of trace. It got its first combat debut down in Panama, which was an overuse and an overkill of the weapon system. was not necessary, but it really shone in, in Desert Storm and did quite well in the uh, the Allied Force uh, deal in uh, Bosnia there. Mm-hmm. So a couple of crashes along the way, but nothing that was of glaring notoriety. It was just uh, by the time it came out into the open, into the, the, the out of the black and into the white world there, it was mm-hmm. a pretty well-established airframe, pretty well-known. I think we had the two crashes under our belt at that yeah. time. I was just going to say, I remember I was about 18, I think, when they admitted to it. And I happened to be out in the hills east of where I lived near Pismo Beach in Central California. And we were out doing something, shooting or four-wheeling or something. And I heard an airplane sound. And of course, being a young aspiring pilot, I look up as I always do and still do. And I remember seeing a tanker go overhead with a little black triangle underneath it. And I thought, whoa, wait, that must be one of those new airplanes they were talking about. So it was kind of serendipitous for me that they had just started in 1988 talking about it. And then here we are out in the, in the boonies and we see one go over. I mean, it was pretty high up, but I could tell what it was. So that was an exciting time because you felt like you'd been 
you know, allowed to open a Christmas present early when, when you heard about this thing. And, oh, by the way, we already have a fleet of them. It you was, F-18 it cool. guys were all over us. As soon as we came out of the black into the regular world there, we bolted on radar reflectors on the airplane so that ATC could see us. Anybody with a radar could see us, <laughs> not gather our true uh, yeah. radar signature. And we were just swarmed by F-18s out of El Centro, uh, wanting to take yeah. a look at the airplane and everything else, you know. So that was kind of an interesting time period. I never had a chance to fly formation off of one. I kind of regret that. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever seen one fly other than that day back in 88. But uh, yeah, really impressive airplane. All right. For notoriety, I did some research. So one of these was actually shot down in Allied Force in March of 99. Yes. And I guess parts of that are now on display in a museum in Belgrade. And of course, our adversaries got their hands on some of it. I read that at the time, we didn't bomb the wreckage because we just felt like, you know what, at this point, it's already admitted and it's relatively 70s technology anyway. That was Dale Zelko. He was actually a pilot training buddy of mine, and uh, he fought in Desert Storm. And uh, here's, uh, I'll be Dale's uh, cheerleader there. That man was absolutely squared away. If you had to pick somebody to have that incident happen to him, get shot down Mm -hmm. over Belgrade, Yugoslavia, and get successfully picked up, it would be Dale. He was a great guy, great pilot, and, you know, to his tribute and credit, he was back in the saddle about three nights later flying again. So (laughs) the guy is incredible. Yeah, stealth technology at that time, and it still does not mean that it's absolutely purely invisible. It's just right. VLO, we call very low observable technology. It had a very small, but the, the Serbian uh, SA-6 uh, guy that shot him down was very skilled. You know, some bad tactics involved, uh, same time, same route, almost every night, things like that. So uh, right. some of that into play. But And in later years, I think Dale met the uh, Serbian uh, gunner that shot him down. Uh, According to Wikipedia, they became friends afterwards. But I will hold you to task if Wikipedia is to be believed. It was an SA-3. Oh, okay. Um, I believe you're thinking of the SA-6 that took down uh, Scott O'Grady. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, Fair enough. How about in Hollywood? Yeah. Where has the listener seen this in the movies? You know what? <laughs> There's one out there, and I can't remember it. It was a long time ago. Oh, come on. This is the best movie ever. Oh. <laughs> Executive Decision, 1996. You remember? Yeah. yeah, they've got like a whole troop of people inside this thing, and they attach under an airplane and like transfer 15 oh, dudes. Yeah. Uh, Russell, Steven Seagal. And I'm sure it made an appearance in one of the Transformers, like every other military aircraft. <laughs> yeah, probably oh, so. Probably fantastic. so. Yeah. All right, dude. Well, when you think back at your career flying the F-117, is there a particular mission or flight or an experience that sticks out with you that you want to share with us? Yes, probably the most surreal night of my existence. It went like this. Everything was standard to take off with the wingmen, and we're meeting the 10 tankers coming down out of Riyadh. I'm the lead, my wingmen. Mark Lindstrom, great guy, FedEx pilot uh, to this day, and I actually saw him a couple months ago. But I get up on the tanker there, and it's all automatic. I could do this, you know, in my zombie sleep kind of thing. But something was a little bit different. So I ended up looking up, and in the tanker pod back there was a young female, and she didn't have uh, a flight suit on. Um, And I could only see really a very small portion of her body at that point, but (laughs) it stunned me. And so she... Caught me looking up. I was looking over the top of the hut and with this almost uh, quizzical expression on my face, like, what? (laughs) 
Then she moved up a little bit further so I could uh, see a little bit more of her. And I just lost it. I couldn't stay on the boom because, you know, <laughs> and we're supposed to go up in radio silence. But I just came over the radio and I told my wingman, I said, go do what I just did. So he slides back in there and she does the same thing to him. And of course, I get the front row seat to watch his airplane wobble around and fall off the boom. And, and is you know, holy smokes explanation after that. And then, and then everybody wanted to know what the heck was going on. So that was the, that was the pre-strike era feeling. Uh, we get our gas. Mark and I split up to do our separate uh, routes and targets. And mine was actually way down in Kuwait at that time. I had two bridges that were about seven or eight miles apart part that they wanted me to bomb. So at that time during the war, Saddam Hussein had set the oil fields on fire in Kuwait. So there was about a 800-foot black scud ceiling down there. And I thought, you know what, I'm not coming this far to, you know, fly at my assigned altitude. It was deconfliction was not a problem, you know, to mm-hmm. fly at my assigned altitude, only to turn around and go back home. So I got down underneath the scud layer there, and all these oil wells aren't, were on fire and everything like that. And being down so low like that required me to basically just put my left foot on the throttles and try to get as much speed as I possibly could because the speed imparted to the bomb was what gave it the penetrating capability. But having said that, uh, I dropped my bomb on the first bridge, but now I ran the risk of overrunning my delir, the gimbling the delir on the bottom. The laser came out the bottom. Right. So I had to whip the throttles to idle, which caused a very spatial sensation of tumbling in space. And then for a 2,000-pound bomb, the, the frag pattern is 2,500 feet from the, the surface up and out. And I was well inside of that. I dropped it at about 700 feet. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So to add to everything, uh, I dropped the span and then a truck drove right off the end right after that. Oh, gosh. And then, obviously, I was caught in the blast envelope of the uh, the bomb. So it turned me upside down, pretty close to about 150 uh, degrees upside down. And I really thought that was the end. Magically, uh, I did the right stuff, uh, rudder and aileron and uh, rudder vaughn, I should say. Got the plane dished out somewhere about 200 feet above the floor of the desert, because I looked at at my radar altimeter, and climbed back up to 700 feet, and then, you know, my next target was very rapidly approaching, so now I knew what to expect, so same thing again, get as much speed as I can, drop the bomb, Uh, it was on another bridge, whip it to idle, same sensation of tumbling, once again, caught in the blast envelope of the uh, bomb, turned upside down, but now I knew, you know, that what I did before was going to work, and so uh, another dish out, you know, on the desert floor about two or 300 feet uh, above. Well, I just pointed the jet skyward and just uh, roared up uh, to altitude there. And I remember pulling my mask off and just gasping for air, as in that's a lot right there. Well, then as luck would have it, (laughs) we had the same tanker on the way back home (laughs) so (laughs) with the same boomer (laughs) and who gave us the same show. (laughs) And so uh, I got 600 miles to go to home and I just couldn't believe that those events had all happened to me (laughs) at that time at that night. And, And I was very appreciative to that young lady, Senior Airman Patricia Lehman, wherever you are in the world, God bless you. Thank you very much. She was out of a KC-135 crew out of, I believe, Grissom, Indiana. 
Indiana. But I tracked her down, and I got a hold of her on a phone, me from my base in Saudi, her from uh, her base up in Riyadh. And I talked to her, super nice young lady, and I said, thank you so much. And I ended up sending her a bunch of pictures and patches and, and memorabilia and stuff like that of the F-117. I said, hey, thank you. You made Mark and my, uh, my night, no doubt. So all that rolled into one, and I'm here. I am talking about it almost 30 years later, and it's vivid as can be for you know a night at the office in the F-117. <laughs> I don't think we've ever quite had a story like that on the show. That, all right, so you went from a virtual Air Force recreation of strolling down Bourbon Street, New Orleans on Mardi Gras, to being upside down at 200 feet. By the way, did they ever find, was it just the blast wave that you felt, or did they find any, did you frag yourself? No, interesting point. Yeah, as soon as I uh, got the jet righted, you know, obviously looked at the engines to see if they were running, they were, looked at the fuel, it wasn't uh, going down at an exceptionally yeah. fast rate. I had not put any holes in myself, and and that was verified <laughs> by, you know, you, that's kind of one of the last things you want to do is yeah. shoot yourself down. Yeah, so got back to the base and carefully inspected the plane, and nothing was there, so. Did your boss congratulate you or reprimand you? Um... Neither. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we had the best boss in the world, Colonel Al Whitley. Oh, wow. Yeah, great, great guy. So uh, okay. nothing was said. Just yeah. <laughs> and just to touch on this uh, other thing gently. That's a uh, really bad <laughs> pun. But um, so let me get this straight. By then, you'd been in not just any old desert, but the Saudi desert, which is pretty well repressed for how long? Oh, from August of uh, 1990 until you know January, February of 91. Yeah, long time. You guys are, are literally and figuratively in the desert, and along comes this young airman <laughs> who can basically improve morale. I hope someone put her in for an award. I- yeah, she did, and that's that's exactly why I called her and sent her those things. And I said, you have no idea what it did for us as individuals, and uh, a footnote in history, but a, a big one, and oh, thank you very man. much. So yes, but you roll all that into one sortie, and it's like, wow, you just couldn't dream this up, but it, it happened, yeah. That's crazy, Robson. Oh, man. So how many missions did you end up doing in Desert Storm? You know, I honestly forget. It was the high 20s, I think. I ended up with the most missions or hours or both or something like that. But we flew every night for maybe the first week or so. And then it became very apparent that that was very taxing on the uh, body and everything. And they brought over a couple extra pilots and I think some more airplanes and things. So we kind of settled into an every other night uh, routine. So the nights I was not flying, uh, I was mission planning. Okay. It is more physically demanding than I ever thought it would be. I probably lost about 35 pounds to the point where I couldn't sit in a chair. My hiney hurt so much um, from lost weight. Wow. The adrenaline is just flowing at super speed, and your body is using up calories like you can't even imagine. Yeah. So everybody was losing weight and everything. Yeah. Well, and being on the backside of the clock is difficult, too. So that had to be a challenge. Good grief, dude. Well, Robson. What? <laughs> <laughs> Good on you. God bless America. <laughs> That's right. So anyway, uh, speaking of that, we're the only ones that fly the F-117, correct? That is correct. It was actually offered to the government of uh, Great Britain. We had two, in the time that I was in the program, we had two British exchange pilots with us in the program. Okay. So the Brits uh, said, uh, it's a little more expensive than we, uh, at 42 million bucks a copy, they passed on the opportunity to buy some and everything. But yes, yeah. we are still the only uh were and still are the only operator of that aircraft, yes. Okay. And then I have to now add this question to my episodes with Air Force guests. You've got the Fighting Falcon, which is the Viper, the Thunderbolt II, which is the Warthog, the Lancer, which is the Bone. So what do you guys call the Nighthawk? It's got to have a nickname, I'm guessing. 
Well, it was initially christened as the Wobbly Goblin by people in the press that had never flown the airplane before. There was some footage when it first became public out the backside of a KC-135 showing it air refueling. To be truthful and honest, the air refueling, published air refueling speeds with a heavy load. The airplane was a, a little bit of a handful, so we always asked the tankers to push it up to about 300, 310, something like that, so it could okay. be a little bit more stable. So the unearned moniker in the press was Wobbly Goblin. We had our own nickname for it, and that was the F-117 wet dream because it came in the middle of the night and there was nothing you could do but clean up in the morning afterwards. So (laughs) that was that problem. You're just jumping over all the normal boundaries on this one, Robson. Well, it was just somebody came up. We had some pretty witty guys in our our squadron. So you could either publish that or not. That's your choice. But that was our name for it. Did I read or make it up? Was it ever the stink bug? I thought I remember reading oh, that. Oh, yeah. That was another one where you know some people said it was uh, you know the cockroach or the stink bug, whatever, you know, because you turn the light yeah. on and it scatters because we weren't flying in the daytime, <laughs> anything like that. And it, you know, it, it has that sinister black look to it. Yeah. So, yes. Killer. <laughs> All right, Robson. Well, that has been a lot of fun. We'll have to uh, call this one a fam, not a family version episode. Thank you very much. <laughs> What's the future hold for you? I mean, you're up there in Alaska. You're, you've done enough, had enough, seen enough. You're just uh, what fishing and hunting now. You know what? what? I'm, I'm living the dream. Quite honestly, uh, always, always wanted to be in Alaska. Always wanted to fly up here and, and everything. And so now that I'm retired, uh, this is a, a huge state. Still lots to see and do. And I live in a very remote uh, location, away from uh, people and cities. My neighbors are bears and wolves and, and moose, and it's yeah. very quiet where I live. And so I don't know what the next chapter is. I'm uh, just really enjoying the retirement aspect of it right now. I could not tell you what I have in mind for the next go, but Sweet. looking back, it's been a great ride. Well, uh, you know, I've, I've only fly fished Alaska once. I'm looking for excuses to go back. So I don't know if that's <laughs> something you do or not, but uh, come on up, man. next summer on I up. might have to come re- yeah, record a second episode. All right, dude. Well, and likewise, if you ever find your way down in Southern California, let me know. I will do that. I will do Final that. question. Yes. Robert Donaldson, Rob's son. I think I could maybe figure this out, but what's the deal with the call sign? Yeah. As a, every fighter pilot in the military gets a call sign. I was in Korea at the time. Everything in Korea was Mama-san, Papa-san baby son, all that stuff. And so it just naturally fit the first three letters of my first name and the last three letters of my last name, Rob Son. It just naturally fits. So it's it's like a mama son or a papa son. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Yep. Yep. Just stuck for all these years. Awesome. Well, Robson, this has been a lot of fun. (laughs) I've learned more than I thought I would about the F-117. Dude, good stuff. Really appreciate your time, and uh, I think we can wrap this up. Jello, let's stay in touch, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. I I very much appreciate it. I'll count on it. You bet. All right, thanks for coming. Okay. Adios. Bye-bye. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that was an interview like no other. Big thanks again to Robson. What a character. Fish, what did you think, man? I thoroughly enjoyed that, and that went places I was not expecting it to go, which was... Really entertaining. I thought it was great. And real. Yeah. Real. That's the kind of stuff that happens. You know, and if people take offense with us making light of the antics, you know, I don't know, maybe you take yourself too seriously. When you've been in the desert for that long, figuratively and literally, I meant that. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's no buddy around of the opposite sex. Back then, I don't think there was that many women involved, but, um, you know, these guys were out there and and I'm sure they had various things to look at. I don't know, but you miss a little 
a taste of different things. And I'm probably digging the hole here deeper than it needs to be. But <laughs> I, you know what? Hey, these are young, red-blooded American men and women, and they did what it needed to be done to get it done. So I should probably move on. But what did you think, though, of the F-117 carrying everything that Air Force carries, including air, air weapons? That blew me away. I had no idea. So it was really funny about that. And, and I was surprised he didn't really get to the point of why it was called the F-117. He didn't mention the air-to-air role that it played when you asked him about all those, why is it called, why did they use an F instead of an A? It took a little bit longer. Yeah, later on, he later came back on, and said, shooting that. down the AWACS. Uh, what was funny is the whole interview, I was waiting for that moment when he would say that because there was a book, for some of our listeners, you might know it, called Red Storm Rising, written by Tom Clancy. And it was all about that. NATO against Soviet Union war that could happen in Europe. Mm -hmm. And it talked about this aircraft called the Frisbee. And the Frisbee's job was to go in undetected and shoot down the AWACS. Mm. And this book was written in 1986, before the F-117 was announced. Wow! So just going back to Tom Clancy and the way he was able to ferret out information... Pretty impressive. Anyway, that was pretty cool to finally hear him say that, that that was the, actually one of the missions of the yeah. F-117. Yeah. Well, that, and apart from the parts of his story we've already addressed, dropping laser-guided weapons from 700 feet oh, over <laughs> under an overcast, getting hit by your own blast wave, getting flipped on your back, and then doing it again. Yeah, right. Twice. He's like, oh, no, no, to expect. <laughs> like, holy cow. Oh, dear. I could sit here and reiterate some of the things he said, but uh, I guess, dear listener, you can obviously go back and play it again. I probably will. Uh, and I really want to keep in touch with him because he's a character. And I thought, by the way, he had a fantastic radio presence. Uh, his voice, his demeanor, everything. I told him I'll reserve any jokes about a face for radio for me, but uh, I thought he did a great <laughs> job. And maybe we'll see if we can get him back on the show. Oh, yeah, that'll be outstanding. And a fly fishing trip to boot, right? Oh, hopefully um, so. Yeah. yeah. Well, you yeah. know, and, and something else for our listeners, too, I'd just like to point out about the F-117. If you read the post we put on Twitter the other day, the Air Force still has a tradition of naming their aircraft. And so um, when you read that article about the one that they put on the stick at the Reagan Library, it's called Unexpected Guest is its name. Hmm. Kind of goes to uh, maybe even a little bit of that wet dream name that, they, <laughs> yeah. that uh, Robson said was uh, they'd call the F-117. Mm -hmm. So anyway, just some other cool little trivia about yeah. F-117s in the Air Force. There. Well, you know what didn't come up in the interview? And I didn't even tell you I was going to bring this up because I haven't done any research, but there are pictures around about F-117s still flying. So, really? uh, yeah, <laughs> apparently there are folks that can go to certain vantage points around the Nellis ranges and they have some imagery from the last year or two. So I didn't bring it up with him because he's been out of the game for a while and I didn't know anything about it other than what everyone else can read. So before you give us grief for not bringing it up, it's just because we frankly don't know. Yeah. And even though, Fish, you're still in the military, I was once, but there, no one's going to tell me. No, and you don't have a need to know in your current capacity. These might not even be military programs anymore. It might be a CIA program flying the F-117. I don't know. Hours, right? Yeah, I don't know. It, yeah. So we didn't mention it because we don't know. And there's probably other things about the aircraft we didn't bring up every once in a while. And I, look, I appreciate it. But people will say, hey, you didn't mention that John McCain flew the uh, A-4 or these other things. You know, we're doing our best. So uh, <laughs> we'll try to cover as much as we can. But we also want to keep these reasonably length. Although that being said, a lot of listeners have said, hey, Keep it longer. We don't mind. So at any rate, all right, that was a good discussion on the F-117. Well, before we wrap up today, we'd like to offer this quick public service announcement. All right. Well, it is once again that time of year where the Wings Over America Scholarship Foundation is holding their annual event on the West Coast. And returning to talk about it again is Miss Midori Gray. Midori, how are you? 
Good. How are you today? I'm doing just fine, thanks. But you're not alone this year. I'm not. I brought over a great friend. Her name is Erin Dermody, and she's actually been volunteering with Wings Over America longer than I have. So, Hello, Erin, and welcome. Hi, it's nice to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. So, Erin, we'll put you in the hot seat first. Remind us, for those of us who forgot from last year, we played a short with you, Midori, if you recall, on our Wingman Foundation episode at the end of 2018. Uh, but Aaron, just real quick, what is the Wings Over America Scholarship Foundation? The Wings Over America Scholarship Foundation is a 5013C foundation tax deductible that provides scholarship money for kids, the you know dependents and mm-hmm. spouses of Navy families in the Navy aviation community. Awesome. And so we talked about that last year, plus they have events. And so, Midori, what's new since we talked to you last year? Well, we're really excited to announce that we were able to provide um, more scholarships last year than the year before. Uh, we provided over 250000 in scholarships for, oh, that's great. Our, yeah, for our recipients. And to this date, we provided $1.8 million in scholarship wow, okay. since the 80s. Yes, I remember you saying last year 1.6, so that seems to make sense. And so, Aaron, this year we have an event coming up here on the West Coast. What can you tell us about that? Well, it'll be a lot like last year and hopefully even more fun. It's going to be a golf tournament on Friday, February 28th. 2020. 2020, Mm -hmm. right there on North Island at the golf course, followed by Happy Hour at McPee's, which is open to everyone. Come and get a drink, get a snack, have some fun. And then Saturday, there will be the concert and auction at the Island Club on North Island. So the golf tournament is on the base and then the auction and concert is on the base. So someone who wants to attend that needs to either have a military ID or a sponsor. Correct. They will definitely need to have a connection. Right. Okay. But McPee's is the famous seal bar on Orange Avenue, not far from the Hotel Del Come one, come all. Okay. So it's open to folks who can come to these events. What if someone can't come but still wants to help? Oh, well, well, we our auction is actually online. And if you follow WFW2020 givesmart.com, you'll be able to register online for the auction, as well as you can bid the items also there as well. Okay. So that is WFW2020.givesmart.com. So if I want to bid on an item and I'm not there that night, I can go to that website? That's correct. Okay. Yes. And, and if it's shippable, we'll ship it and sure. we'll figure out a way to get it to you. Okay. Because not everything is a basket that's on location. That's right. Uh, a former guest on the show actually last year provided a sailing excursion mm-hmm. that was auctioned off and raised funds. Great. Well, what if someone just wants to contribute in some manner? Well, you can also still go on that website and we have dollars for scholars and you can donate through a link that you can click for there. And what if someone wants to donate something to be auctioned? Is that possible? Uh, Yes, you can always contact us through our website, which is wingsoveramerica.us. And um, you can contact um, Andrea, who is our CEO of the nonprofit, or you can contact us through Facebook. Right. You have a Facebook group. Is it uh, Wings Over America Scholarship Foundation? That's correct. Okay, great. All right. So, Erin, what are we hoping to do this year? Well, we're hoping to give as much money as we can to kids and the spouses. So if we can beat our number from last year and help even more, that's our goal. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a great cause and it's helping people whose families are, they move a lot, right? Right. Spouses are deployed a lot. And so it's a great cause. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, tell us again, the couple of websites, if you would. Sure. It's wfw2020.givesmart.com for the auction. All right. And you can also register the golf tournament there too. 
And then the wingsoveramerica.us for if you would like to donate, if you're a business and you'd like to donate and you need to contact our Andrea, that'd be a great way to. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Okay. Well, Midori, thanks for coming back. It's Thank good you. to see you again. Me too. Aaron, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. And good luck with your event this year. Thank you. Thank you so All much. Right. All right. Well, that will do it then. As always, we want to thank our new Patreon supporters, which include Strike Leads, Josh Latzman, Robert Haynes, Ryan Stroyles, and Mission Commander Eamon McHugh. Please remember the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. That'll do it for this week. Fish, thanks again for returning and helping out this week. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, Jello. Always a pleasure. All right, hold on. Quick pop quiz before you go. Do you remember the name of the Nevada base where Robson said they operated the F-117 out of? Oh, yeah. And I remember my dad telling me stories about getting to fly Russian adversary aircraft out of this base, too. Ah, Tonopah. Tonopah. It's what you did in Tonopah. You didn't talk about it. Well, and speaking (laughs) of what your dad told you, that is what we're going to talk about on the next episode. Some of those previously unacknowledged programs that once shared the ramp and the airspace around Tonopah. You won't want to miss it. Again, please visit our sponsors, Hawthorne with an E.co. And don't forget to check out our new sister podcast, Air Combat Sim. Have a great week and a half. And we'll look for you again next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. See ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. Or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Oh, man, I don't know if I should go back and change that (laughs) or not. Just keep on shoveling. Keep shoveling, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.